Good afternoon, everybody. You're, you're good to be here. Those of you who have been cla in class for six hours today, I hope you got a little bit of a break. I think you're in for a treat. My name is Michael Suarez, and I'm the director of Rare Book School, as I think many of you know. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to this, the first of the season of summer lectures. Our speaker tonight, Jack Chen, is Associate Professor of Chinese Literature in the Department of East Asian Languages, Literatures, and Cultures here at the University of Virginia. He is the author of The Poetics of Sovereignty on Emperor Chichang and the Tang Dynasty and the co-editor of Idle Talk, Gossip and Anecdote in Traditional Chinese Literature. And he's written articles on subjects as wide-ranging as medieval Chinese poetry, data visualization, and the representation of reading in medieval China. He's co-director of the Humanities Informatics Lab here at UVA. He's a collector of poetry broadsides and prestige editions of comic book collections. He's a self-described rare book school enthusiast. He originally took the history of the book in China in 2017, and then thought he was really going to bite the bullet and took Des Bib last year. And I see, despite the note I wrote to the contrary, he was admitted to typography and printing in the 19th and 20th centuries, which will be offered in the fifth week this time. Um, Jack's BA is from a school in New Haven, Connecticut called Yale University. His MA is from the University of Michigan, and his PhD is from Harvard. And as Jack never said, all of that pales in comparison to my time at Rare Book School. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Professor Jack Chess. Um, thank you, Michael, and I want to thank the Rare Book School for inviting me to give this talk today. It's uh, really an honor, um, and it's a little bit intimidating because I've only been in Rare Book School as a student, so it's, it's a kind of a change of uh, sort of perspective being up here. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, actually, before I get into the talk itself, I want to take uh, two steps back and preface it with uh, two uh, comments. Uh, first of all, um, this talk is slightly different, I think, than probably what most of the talks at Rare Book School are going to be about, um, where most of the Rare Book School talks tend to be, or Rare Book School itself tends to be about the physical materiality of books, um, from paper to signatures to things like printer's marks. Um, and, uh, and while this talk does deal with materiality in one sense, it is not um, in terms of physical materiality. And I'm trying to say that as not to be redundant, physical and material, but rather to sort of emphasize the physical makeup of the book, which is the center of what we do here um, in Rare Book School, and what I'm interested in, which is materiality of a different kind. The second thing, in terms of a step, book, uh, step back, is um, thinking about um, how, uh, in terms of what I'm interested in as a literary uh, scholar, um, how our model of literature has, in many ways, repressed its materiality. Right? And so, when we think about literature, we're often thinking about poems or novels in the abstract as platonic forms, not in terms of how they have been embodied in material form. Um, and again, um, 
Rarebook School deals with materiality in one particular sense, and um, I hope I'm not overstepping in saying that Rarebook School is often agnostic to the literariness of its um, within the books itself. Is there interested more in the actual bookness of the book? Um, and here, and I'm mostly interested, um, and I'm also agnostic actually in what I'm going to talk about in terms of the literariness of, of Chinese literature. Um, in fact, uh, what I'm going to talk about today, uh, it, that doesn't really have to be about China, though it is um, contextualized in China, and it doesn't have to be about literature, um, because I'm actually going to sort of show how um, one way of thinking about literary history is to divorce it or to void it of its literariness and to think about it in terms of a kind of materiality. So one sort of parallel track to this repression of um, material conditions um, and one sort of parallel uh, way in which scholarship in recent years has addressed this um, and I just want to cite this to show that there is this other sort of mode that's out there, um, is the, um, the new lyric school that's um, identified often with Virginia Jackson and Yogi Prince. Um, and in their work, um, they have argued that what we think about as poetry is often very much a recent invention. Um, we think about poetry in terms of the poem, um, when in fact um, there is, you know, variations of poetry, there is multiplicities of poetry, and the kinds of poets that we often think about as poets are often poets that have been published in a particular form in modern print conditions, um, and, um, and we read them in that way. Um, so we often mistake the modern print edition of the poem for poetry. Um, and so they want to sort of push back against this and to reinstate a materiality to how poetry was produced um, in its um, earlier forms. And Emily Dickinson is the primary, primary candidate for what they're looking at in terms of a problematic case of what it means to define something as poetry. So um, stepping back um, from that, um, I want to say that literary history um, as such can't be simply conceived of, I think, as a history of its physical forms, which is what Rare Book School would do, because I'm interested, again, in a particular literary aspect of that. But that literary aspect of that itself can also not be divorced from its materiality. Um, and the materiality that I'm going to talk about today is one that I'm going to couch in terms of information systems. So um, let me begin by saying that um, our notion of information, and information is a complicated term. Um, would I, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not, I don't do the math part of this. Um, Claude Shannon and Warren Weaver, there are people here who know this much better than I do, but uh, Claude Shannon and Warren Weaver are often identified as sort of beginning the information age with uh, in this diagram of how communication happens is often understood as the first way in which we think about what information is. Um, and my project is not thinking about information in this 20th century recent contemporary kind of moment, but rather think about information as a long-standing problem, um, that one that has not just one age, but ages, right? And so we can think about this as one crystallization of the problem of information, particularly as couched in a problem of communication. Um, and for this model, what I really want to focus on is really not the, and if you read the um, piece that they published, he was, Klaus Shannon was an uh, engineer at Bell Labs, uh, Warren Weaver then came and collaborated with him later on, um, but the main thing here in this diagram I want to focus on is really that central horizontal line that goes through, which is the channel. The channel is what conveys information, it is the materiality through which information is conveyed within the communication model. Um, and 
from that, um, we can think about um, several definitions of what information might be understood as. Now, Warren Weaver was the more, um, uh, he was the more articulate, uh, not articulate, that's not the right word. He was, he was clearer than, the other, than, than, than Shannon. And so much of what we think about when we read through the Shannon Weaver model of communications, we're actually reading through Warren Weaver's words, uh, Warren Weaver's conceptions. And he writes that information is not so much what you do say as what you could say. Um, it's a measure of one's freedom of choice and one selects a message. Um, and when he conceives of information that way, and this is in some ways parallel to, again, sort of that earlier sort of mention that I made about rare book school being agnostic to questions of literariness, um, the information model that the Shannon Weaver uh, diagram um, articulates is agnostic to content, to the semantic content of what's transmitted through the channel of, infer, of, inf, of, the, of the system, right? They're not interested actually in what you say, they're interested in what you could say. So, and that becomes a question of how much of quantity of information that goes through the channel. Now, Donald McKay, a physicist, um, pushes back against this and points that when we talk about information, there's often a confusion of the concept of information with that of information content, the confusion of a thing with the measure of a thing, right? And so information has always had this, as a modern term at least, uh, kind of a fuzzy uh, and, and sort of hard to articulate uh, quality to it. It's hard to define. You read through, um, as I've when thinking through this project, reading through various accounts of what information is, um, it's not clear often um, that we either uh, have a very clear understanding of what the Shannon Weaver model of information was. There are still articles being written that argue you know, and try to define that. And then we have, then finally, uh, Luciano Floridi, um, a philosopher of information, who says we still do not seem to have a much clearer idea about its specific nature. Right. So again, um, information is a complicated thing. There are multiple ways of defining it. Um, and it really depends on the kind of argument that you're making, um, how you understand it. And I want to define it in a very simple way. Um, and before I get to that, um, I have a one more quote from another physicist, uh, Rolf Landauer, um, who provides an information, uh, a definition of information, or at least a contextualization of what information is that I find useful. He writes that information is not a disembodied abstract entity. It is always tied to a physical representation. It is represented by engraving on a stone tablet, a spin, a charge, a hole in a punch card, a mark on paper, or some other equivalent. This ties the handling of information to all the possibilities and restrictions of our real physical world, its laws of physics, and its storehouse of available parts. So information, um, as I understand it, and as I'm going to sort of use it in my provisional sort of um, definition, Information is what is managed, i.e. encoded, stored, retrieved, transmitted. Um, a history of information is a history of how information has been managed. And by managed, I think I'm switching out embodied for managed in the sense um, that information has to be on something, right? It has to be in something. And so that something of what's managed or in Landauer's formulation, what's embodied, is the materiality that I'm interested in. Okay, so that's all actually just sort of background to the actual project. And I should say that the project um, is uh, not something that I'm doing by myself. It's a project that I'm uh, working on with uh, four other editors. Um, this is a book that's coming out hopefully in uh, 2020, we'll see, um, uh, that is uh, meant to sort of provide a literary history of information um, or a, lit a literary history that deals not with the actual texts um, of literary history, that is, say, poets, uh, 
poems, things that we normally think about as units of, uh, of a literary historical narrative, but rather the forms that allow literature to be transmitted over the years, right? And so these store storage devices, if one might think about these technologies, um, that, that is the materiality that I'm actually interested in today. Okay, so um, we, over the course of three years, um, we've been sort of meeting as a group and trying to talk about this, and, um, and this book project that's coming out has some 56 or 57 different contributors in it. Um, and you know, managing that right, was also difficult because it's, it was managing actually the, the physical distribution of articles of the book was itself a problem of information management. Right? How do you sort of write this kind of history? How do you put something together in a cogent way that's clear to an audience that may have never thought about literature as information before or doesn't really or resists the idea that you, that you could equi uh, make an equivalence uh, between literature and information. So it took us about three years to come up with this very simple schema. Uh, we were going to think about literature and, and especially literary information because there's, I mean again, the history of writing in China is a very long history and there's a lot that we could have talked about but really falls out of the scope of what we tried to find as literature. And defining things as literature was hard too, right? Because defining what is literature is not something that I think is uh, on the face of it actually uh, an easy task. Um, I think that's actually the business of literary criticism for the most part. What literary criticism is fascinated with is that problem, that meta problem of what, what its discipline is, what its object is. Um, but we decided that we're going to look at this at three levels. And the level of the word, and word is a hard problem as well, a hard concept, because word is, again, you know, what do we mean by word, right? And so we'll see complications of that as we go through. Um, the level of the document, and document we're using in a very particular sense, document as opposed to text, which I'll come back to, and the level of the collection. So these are three scales uh, of, of thinking about how um, literature or literary domains might be organized within um, a history of a, um, of a culture. Now, at the level of the word, and again, word is the best way we could sort of have a catch-all concept for this. Um, we are thinking about everything from graphs, which um, then includes under its, this category things like script and in script reform. And those of you who are familiar with Chinese, uh, the Chinese language may know that, um, you know, in with the advent of the People's Republic of China, there was a massive project to simplify the Chinese language, the written Chinese language, so that it could be more easily taught within schools, people could have, there could be a higher level of literacy in, in the nation. Um, script reform is also, could be also thought of as alphabetization, um, so there was various ways in which North American and Western scholars tried to find romanization systems for Chinese, right? And at, the, at present, pinyin is the one that's most widely used. Um, but these are all ways of interacting with the language, right? of transforming the written language from one form to another. Things like indexing systems. How do you find Chinese characters in a dictionary? Right? In a language like English, which is alphabetic, we can look it up by the alphabet, which is an abstraction of the word. Right? We're just thinking about the word not as the word itself, but as the first letter. So that first letter becomes an abstraction, a way of, sort of finding, getting access to and ordering a system of, of, of words. 
Um, indexing systems in Chinese are much more complicated because there's no real easy way to do that. Um, what we see developed over time is something called the radical index, which is one half of the character is going to be understood as the classifier element. It's going to be abstracted from the rest of the character. That character often has a semantic meaning to it. That is to say that abstracted part of it often has some semantic meaning. And that semantic meaning is going to now be used as a classifier term, right? And so we're going to look things under the classifier term, and then under the classifier term, we're going to look for the word by order of strokes, by number of strokes. Now, there are different indexing systems. That's not the only one. And in the 20th century, we find something called the Four Corners System, which I'm not going to talk about today. It was taught to us all in the tools and methods classes when we were graduate students. I never learned it because it was just terrible. I mean, why would you say, and this is a way, of, this is a, a scientific way of approaching an indexing problem by converting the, at the four corners of a character to numbers. Numbers would go from zero to nine, and some of us were really good at looking things up like this, and some of us just couldn't learn it. Like I could never learn katakana, and you know, like I just like when I learned Japanese, I learned hiragana, I learned kanji because I knew kanji. I could not learn katakana. It's like there's these things that you just can't get around. Anyway, um, but indexing systems is a problem, and it's an interesting problem because it's a problem of information retrieval. Where right? how do we find things in a book? And finally, input methods, which is a very contemporary problem. Um, and um, I don't know, those of you who are familiar with, um, I don't know how many of you um, work in Chinese or East Asian languages, but there's an app called Plico. Plico is an app dictionary. It's the greatest app dictionary ever created. I used to carry around a classical Chinese dictionary with me every time I traveled somewhere so I could use it. Now I have Plico on my iPhone, which is wonderful. And, um, and the uh, creator of Plico, Mike Love, um, is contributing for this project the section on input systems, right, input methods. Because inputting things on a computer is also a complicated set of problems, right? How do you encode things? Um, how do you find ways of, and how do you use, how do you transform an alphabetic keyboard so that it can encode Chinese characters, right? And so there are different ways of doing that, but, but that, that's, a, that's a, also a problem, not only of, of um, indexing and of retrieval, but rather of, um, uh, it's more of an engineering problem on that end of the language. So then we have things like lexicons. Lexicons are things like dictionaries, but also rhyme tables. Um, and rhyme tables are something that are actually really important within Chinese history. Poets often would compose poems, um, and they would internalize rhyme tables. They would have a set of things that would always rhyme, right? Um, poems that deal with autumn often have an O sound at the very end because the word autumn is cho, right? And if you have a word where you end the line with, or you end the rhyme, you have the rhyme with O with the cho sound, then you'll have things like lo, which are towers. You'll have things like yo, which is sadness. You have things like liu, which is like the flow of a river. And those things become like just basically um, almost like automatic things that, that create little machines. The poems become machines that reproduce these rhymes, right? And the rhyme tables um, are ways of standardizing these rhymes, of saying that under this rhyme, and they will, again, in the rhyme table, they'll have a header character that's going to represent the rhyme. The first rhyme um, in a rhyme table is always dong, the word for east. Um, and under dong, you'll have all the own rhymes, right? Of course, rhymes change over time because language pronunciation changes over time. Um, but the thing is, what's interesting, and I think we see this also in English language poetry, is that rhyme categories don't change. You still rhyme things that no longer rhyme in the spoken language, right? Because you're following the rhyme table, not the spoken language when you think about rhymes. But again, rhyme tables are a way of organizing information, um, literary information in particular, right? And finding ways of thinking about how poems should be constructed, what actually counts as a rhyme. Dictionaries are complicated. Um, and again, we'll, um, I'll talk a little bit about dictionaries in the next slide. 
Punctuation is an interesting concept. Things weren't punctuated in pre-modern Chinese. You were a learned scholar, you were a learned, if you could read it all in pre-modern China, you should know how to read a sentence without punctuation, right? It's like a scripta continua, right? And so um, it's not as bad as scripta continua, but it, it's like scripta continua. But you would, as you would read, you know, you would naturally know where to punctuate something. And if you wanted to, you can mark the punctuation yourself in a book, right? So you would write a little circle to mark the end of a phrase. Now, punctuation, we see earlier forms of punctuation, actually, before modern punctuation, and things like earlier forms of punctuation might include everything from editing marks. Um, something that's like three dots at the side of a character means delete this, I made a mistake, right, when the scribe writes it. Um, but these are marks that help you organize the information on the page because it tells you how to read a particular printed or a particular handwritten manuscript, right? What to read, what to omit, what doesn't count, right? Um, things like sentences and paragraphs, right? These are schemas or things of ways of organizing words. And in the parallel, in poetry, are things like lines and couplets. Lines and couplets might be more easy to illustrate because a line in a Chinese poem typically is five syllables or seven syllables. Sometimes it's four syllables. Rarely it's three syllables, and once in a while it's six syllables. But usually it's five and seven. Five and seven constrains you, and you can think again about the channel of information, and I'm going to use the Shannon Weaver model as a metaphor. The channel of information is what constrains how much information can go across, right, the medium. That's the physical embodiment. Um, the line is the physical embodiment, right? That's the materiality that constrains how much information can go across a poetic line. If you have five syllables, you can only say so much. One thing that happens, what we see is in earlier Chinese poetry, you start with four syllables as a standard line length. When you get to five syllables, suddenly you start to say more, right? You can make things more explicit as you are explaining something in a line. When you get to seven syllables, right, you can say a lot more. Um, and often what you see in the earlier version of a five-syllable line is a kind of a flabbiness. That extra syllable doesn't need to be there, right? They're just working through a new sort of form, and they haven't quite mastered it yet. They don't know the full capacity of a five-syllable line. Um, seven syllables, they... You don't really see that flabbiness. Um, there's flabbiness, obviously, in some Chinese poetry, but it's not because of the line. Um, so things like sentences and paragraphs are other ways of organizing um, information on the, on, the, on the level of the word. And finally, um, the, as a transition, we might think about commentaries. And early commentaries often say, this character is pronounced this way, right? Because often it's a rare character, a character that people don't know, or they'll say, this character means this, right? And so a commentary at this early level is at the level of the word, but over time, commentaries become much more prolix. Commentaries become concerned with meaning, not just with uh, what we might think about as philology. So that's just in terms of the level of the word. The level of the document, um, we have things like anthologies, encyclopedias, and histories and biographies. Um, I understand, um, and I've argued, and, and again, among the editors, there's not 100% agreement on uh, all this, but I've argued that anthologies could be understood as representative documents. So as I say, that um, an anthology, what it tries to do is it makes an argument. And it makes the argument by including certain things and excluding certain things. Now, certain anthologies include everything or claim to include everything. Um, but that's, again, making an argument about this is what this everything is, right? Um, as opposed to then what an encyclopedia is, and we're using encyclopedia in a very loose term sense, um, there's not really the modern sense of encyclopedia until the 20th century, and we get the modern Western encyclopedia in the 20th century in China. But the earlier form is what we think about as category books, lei shu. Category books are books that are arranged by a topic. Things like, it, and these category books would always begin with heaven 
and Earth. Those are the two binomes, right? the two sort of dyads that structure cosmology. And so under heaven, you would have them extracts from literature that things that if you were writing a poem and you wanted to say, what did that other poet say about heaven? Right? You could look it up in a category book, and the category book would give you model lines, model couplets. How do you structure a poem? Right? Again, you can think about them, again, this is literature we often think of as a creative endeavor. My argument really is that literature often is like a machine. Literature can be thought of as an information system, one in which it has efficiencies and inefficiencies, ways of accessing information easily and reproducing it on the page. Okay, um, anthologies, um, I'll talk actually about, I'll, I'll do two deep dives, one into lexicons and one into anthologies, so I'm going to leave this as it is. Histories and biographies, at least in the Chinese tradition, often reproduces documents. These documents are things like speeches, they're things like um, memorials to the emperor, they're things like emperor's edicts, back to the officials. They're also things like poems. So in a biography of a literary person, you often have a very long poem that represents, this is the greatest thing that this person wrote, right? And they'll reproduce it there, and often that'll be the one place you'll find it in the tradition, right? And after that, of course, it'll pass into modern anthologies, because modern anthologies will go through this and take these out of the context in which they were and republish them, right? As, again, in our modern way of reading, in things like somebody's selected works, right? So, histories and biographies are another way in which we see documents, but again, documents not as representative, again, not as making an argument about something like a canon. Anthology might make an argument about a canon, it might make an argument about what is Tang poetry, it might make an argument about what you should read in Tang poetry. An encyclopedia is not organized in the same way, it's really thinking about how do we think about the world as a series of topics, and then how do we fit in literary extracts under those topics. And in history and biography is often like, what piece of literature most represents a given person, right? What piece of literature most represents a given moment in time, right? A historical moment. And so, again, these are different sort of logics, I think, that all work in terms of what we call document. And now, when I say document... Oh, no. I'm sorry. I said document in a second. I thought I had a second. Let me just stop. No? Okay. So, I didn't, I, I must have taken a slide out. Documents I'm using in the sense that's used in uh, Schools of Information, um, Suzanne Briere. And so, document, Suzanne Briere, you know, says that a document is anything, is a text that's put in, not a text, it's something that's put in, in service of an argument. So, a zoological collection, an antelope would be a document, right? Because the antelope is part of the argument that this is a zoological collection and this is what we're collecting. Um, so, document is a useful term for us, I think, because it's a way of thinking about things not in terms of texts, but rather objects that are being repurposed, taken out of one context and put into a new context for a particular kind of argument. The argument might be things like what is a canon, right? What is canonical tongue literature? The argument might be things like what pieces of literature best express cosmological principles, right? Okay. So the final scale is the collection, and collection here, I'm not going to talk about this very much in the talk itself because uh, it's just too much to go through, but um, libraries, archives, and museums, which we think about as physical collections of documents, um, and then catalogs and bibliographies, which are indexical collections of documents. Finally, um, serial publications, which is some of the most interesting because it doesn't fit neatly in a lot of the other categories, but things like printed collections of documents. And when I say printed collection of documents as opposed to physical collection of documents, um, I'm thinking in particular of 
we mostly know what a library is. Libraries serve many purposes, um, but libraries, um, at least um, in the modern sense, are ways in which we store and make available uh, particular books, right, or particular collections of documents. A serial publication, um, at least in the Chinese context, are publications that are produced serially. So they will often say that this is a library, like the Library of America would be considered a serial publication in a sense, right? Because it is a, it's like a library in a sense, but it's a library in time as opposed to a library in space, right? So again, if a library, a museum, or an archive is located in space, it has a spatial logic, and has to arrange things in a spatial logic so you can find things easily, a serial publication like a Library of America kind of publication, and there are many of these in the Chinese tradition, um, is a library that's being produced over time, and it it doesn't have an ending point to it, right? There's no definite like place that it's going to stop. Okay, so going back to dictionary, and this is part of the two deep dives I'm going to do. Um, I think this is you know, people can probably see this. Um, I'll talk. There are four different dictionaries that I'm going to sort of briefly mention. Um, the first is the Urya. The Urya is a glossary, not a dictionary. Um, it's a really hard work to sort of understand because. In some ways, what it functions as is really like a, it's somewhere between a lexicon and a commentary. Um, what we see in it are graphs that are listed under a headword in topical categories, and it goes from verbs and particles to livestock, right? And there are 2,000 plus entries in it, and is one of the 13 Confucian classics. Um, the, th the Confucian classics, um, for the most part, are not like the Urya. The Confucian classics, for the most part, are things like the Analects, right? The Mencius. Things that are like that sages say, and 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 we sort of internalize, and we become better people because of that, um, or the things like the classical poetry, and the classical poetry is a collection of 305 poems that Confucius supposedly picked out of a corpus that was circulating around of more than 600, and they represent in. Confucius is sort of canon, canonical rendering, a way of thinking about the history of the Zhou dynasty in which he lived um, through poetic form. So these canonical works often have things to do with moral um, resources. They often have to do with history. The Urya is not like that. The Urya is a kind of a secondary work that's used in many ways to help us understand the language of the classics. At least that's what people seem to think it does. Now, it has a problem of retrieval, right? So instead of in a modern dictionary where it has classifier um, characters that serve as indexical terms, the Urya doesn't have that. It simply has, it's simply a word list. It has a header word, and under that header word, then there's a bunch of other words. Sometimes you read through these word lists and you're like, well, that header word and most of the other words make sense in the, as a category, but what about those three? Those three make no sense in this category, right? And there's no explanation for it. This is not something that we have any access to anymore, right? But this is a way, at least at some point, that they were thinking about how can you organize language in a way that you can retrieve certain kinds of information. And for the most part, these header words and the words that are listed under seem like synonyms, but they're not 100% synonyms. Okay, the Shuo-Injets, the next one, is probably the one that most looks like a dictionary from the early period. It's the first one that starts to use classifiers, bu shou, and there are 540 of them. Now, it provides definitions of the characters along with analysis of the, how the characters were derived, and it provides alternate graphic forms. There are over 9,000 entries in that. Um, and it says, again, this is a work that is being used as a lexicon. It's telling us what words mean, right? And it has a way of finding those words. Now, 
No one uses the Shro and Jezus classifiers now. If you have a modern edition of the Shro and Jezus, it will have a pinion index at the end, and that's what you're going to use. Right? You're going to use the Romanized index because that's much easier than having to go through the classifier system. The Guan Yun, as the third of these uh, lexical works, is a rhyme book. It identifies their four tones, and under these four tones, there are 206 rhyme groups listed. Each of these rhyme groups um, represents um, things like, um, uh, it, it'll, they'll be classified at the head of a, a classifier um, character at the head of it, and then they'll be have the, the, the characters that rhyme under that. The pronunciations are given for the first character in the homophone group. Again, these are, these are um, the categories. Um, under something called the Fanches system, because, again, within a non-alphabetic language, how do you represent sounds? What you do is you take a character that everyone's supposed to know how it's pronounced, you cut the front of it and the back of it up. The front is a constant, the back is a vowel, right? Um, and so you have a way of representing sound through a character that everyone should know, right? Um, again, there's nothing like an alphabet. Nowadays, if you look up uh, a, uh, a Chinese, Chinese dictionary, often they'll give you the pinyin pronunciation because, again, that's the easiest way to do that. And if any of you are familiar with the Taiwanese system, that's the system I grew up under, um, there was an artificial um, phonetic language that was created, Juing Fu Hao, which was an attempt to alphabetize pronunciation right, um, in, in Chinese. Uh, that's no longer taught anywhere except probably for some Chinese schools um, in America, by parents who are Taiwanese. Anyway, and the last is a dictionary that's actually very close to what we think of as a modern dictionary. This is the Kanxi Zidian. This, um, Kangxi was an emperor in the Qing dynasty, um, and so he um, ordered that this dictionary be created. Uh, there are 214 classifiers, so we see a simplification of the number of classifiers that we had um, from the early period. And over time, of course, there is um, growth and subtraction in terms of the number of graphs that are circulated in, in, the, in Chinese culture. Um, we again have pronunciations given in modern Fanchess system, um, but also we see homophones being used. Again, if the Fanchess system doesn't do what it needs to do, we have a homophone often given, and we have redundancy written now into the system, right? A way of sort of accessing that information two different ways as opposed to just the one. If you don't understand the Fanchess example, you have a homophone that helps you, right? Now, what's interesting about this, as opposed to the earlier uh, lexical works, is that we have quotations from earlier usages. And here we see literature being reinscribed into literature in the lexical work, right? Now, um, we might think about, um, when we look up things in a dictionary, we're often thinking about what does this word mean in a given line that I'm reading, right? Because we don't know what the word means in the context of the line. We might think about the lexical work in the Chinese tradition um, as a way um, of indexing um, quotations, right, by characters, right? That is to say that instead of looking up um, a character to understand what the character means in the line that you're reading, um, we can think about this kind of dictionary, and all modern dictionaries that follow from this do the same thing. They will give you usage examples. Those usage examples often are the very first usage of that character, but not always. Sometimes they're just a famous usage of that character in a famous literary line. So it becomes a way of organizing literary lines by character, in, in a, actually in a different kind of way of thinking about what a dictionary does. Okay, so going from that, um, oh, this is right. 
that document. This is the document that's supposed to be text. We don't need to talk about this. Sorry. Um, so finally, um, uh, I want to talk about uh, anthologies and go into this in a little bit more detail. Um, so I mentioned anthologies as represent documents by genre, and there are a couple of examples when we think about things like the one trend, which is an early anthology that organizes things by genre. So it begins with a genre called foo, Rhapsody. Foo Rhapsody, uh, Foo or Rhapsody are very long poetic texts. Um, they often go on and on. Um, there are things about gardens from emperors, right? And, and they're often on an imperial scale of, of rhetorical magnificence. But we also think about things like individual anthologies that are biegi, that is someone's private collection of literary works. Um, we can do a um, class of individual, which is a zongji, that is to say, um, a collection that includes all the different individuals as opposed to the works of one individual, and things by dynastic period. Um, what I'll talk about today um, when I go into the deep dive for anthology is a zongji, something that collects all sort of writings by, by all individuals within a particular period. The encyclopedia of Leishu, I've talked about a little bit before, and I think the great chain of being is a good way of thinking about it. It's, like, it's often cosmological in, in terms of its scope, and I've talked already about dynastic histories. So in my remaining time, because I know that we, it's supposed to be about half an hour, um, I'm just going to talk briefly about the Trentang Shi, which is complete Tang poems. This is something that was produced in the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty in China, um, and it was meant to produce and um, to sort of uh, to um, gather together all Tang poems. Right? It doesn't do that. Um, they're actually, you know, least certain poems out. Um, they're poems that were collected later on. They're poems that are found in manuscript collections from Japan later on. Poems are collected from Dunhuang later on, in different, that's an oasis town outside, you know, in the uh, western regions of China. Um, but it tries its hardest to collect all tongue poems. There are 49 plus thousand poems in, in the collection, so it's, it's quite a lot that's actually collected. But we can see now, thinking about, you know, schema of organization, how you find things, right? Um, this doesn't come with a table of contents, right? It doesn't come with an index. So you have to find it by class, because that's how it's organized. So the first class that we see are poems by emperors, empresses, and imperial members, right? Does it say, and of course, this is like a encyclopedia in this cosmological scheme. You begin with the emperor. The emperor is like heaven on earth, right? And so you begin with the emperor as the first thing. Then you move to rituals and sacrifices, because again, that's fairly cosmological in nature, right? It has its own kind of logic that we might follow through. Music barrel poetry is related tangentially to the rituals and sacrifices because the music barrel poems are poems that started out being composed by imperial command, by the imperial academy of music for ritual celebrations in the court. And so it has, again, that tie to the imperial palace. But over time, everyone starts to write music barrel poems. Music barrel poems are not necessarily about ritual sacrifices. They're often typological, like a soldier who returns home from a war you know, to find his village is gone. That would be a music barrel poem um, as a class. Um, so those things become increasingly miscellaneous within that one category. Now, the bulk of the Trentang Shi is chapters 30 to 731. That is poems by individual poets of the Tang Dynasty. For the most part, the Trentang Shi tries to follow a chronological order. It doesn't always succeed, right? So, again, if you're looking for something in the Trentang Shi, you'd have to know roughly when someone was born, right? And you have to find out, okay, was this guy born before that person or before that person, right? And so, again, finding things is not terribly efficient in this kind of book. But it has a way of finding something at least, right? It, is, it tries to gesture towards a kind of an ordering system for you um, as a reader. I don't think anyone really read the Trentang shit, right? Um, but again, if you needed to find something in it, this is how you would do it. You'd have to sort of have a general sense of literary history right, over time. 
Now, dynastic villains and rebels, they don't deserve to be in that earlier section of literary history because they rebelled against empire, right? So they're in their own section. Then we have individual poets of the Five Dynasties. The Five Dynasties was a period of, um, of splintering and disintegration. It follows after the fall of the Tang Dynasty. No one's going to write the trend, Wu Dai, the complete poems of the Five Dynasties, so they decide they're just going to stick it in here. Right? Then we have poems by poets with partial biographical information. You don't know when a poet was alive, right? You don't know where to stick them. That becomes a problem of information retrieval and storage. How do you stick, where do you place that particular poet? You don't know his biography or her biography. You stick them in this section, right? Then poems of authorial attribution. You have poems, you have no poets. Where do you put them? You put them here, right? Then linked verse poems. Linked verse poems are poems written by multiple poets at the same time at a party. Where do you stick them? You can't stick them under the first section of individual poets. They get the special section here. This goes on. Incomplete poems and lines by poets not listed above, right? So this is like kind of a casual thing. We had some fragments of poems. They're not whole poems. We're going to stick them here. Incomplete poems and lines without authorial attribution, of course, right? Because you also have fragments from people from, of poems that from people you don't know. Poems by women, right? They get their own special section after everything else because it's a misogynist tradition. Poets by Buddhist figures, they don't like the Buddhists either terribly. I mean, the Buddhists are kind of like, again, this is an imperial project. Buddhists are, like, this is a class of, like, of social others, right? Women, Buddhist figures, then Taoist figures, right? Then we move from now human others to semi-human others, right? Male immortals, people who achieve transcendence in life but write poetry, right? And so they get their own section. Poems by female immortals, again, misogyny, they are not classed with the male immortals, they have to get their own special section. My favorite part is poems by spirits, ghosts, and anomalies. Spirits and ghosts, the separation of these two terms, because it's not a clear dividing line, what's a spirit and what's a ghost. Spirits are like gods, but spirits get worshipped. You conduct sacrifices to spirits, you don't conduct sacrifices to ghosts, right? That's the dividing line, usually. Um, anomalies. Anomalies are things like hedgehogs who write poetry. And there is one hedgehog who writes a poem in the Trendangshu. I have a hedgehog, so I'm fond of this. Um, poems sent in dreams, right? That gets its own section. Um, and again, it's sent in dreams by someone who might be someone that you know, but often you don't, right? So, um, just and insult poems. Um, and this, it feels a little bit like at this point, like this could have been in the biographical section, but they felt like this was too low class, so they had to stick it in this own section at the end. Poems inscribed on walls, because they actually did that, they went around taverns and writing poems, they wrote poems on walls. Um, judgments is actually a really weird genre, which I'm not going to get into. Um, songs sung by groups or local communities, again, that's a communal problem, right, so how do you, you stick them in this? Prophetic verse. Poems often without thorough attribution that prophesize things are going to happen to the dynasty, right? So that gets, and often these prophetic verses are sometimes sung by, uh, well, it's either going to be in this section or in, in 878. Um, they're often, like, children will, like, start to sing a little nursery rhyme, and the nursery rhyme, someone later on, like, that foretold the fall of our dynasty, right? Because there's something in that, that line that's almost like a rebus. It'll be something that you have to put together to understand what the poem's really about. Um, drinking songs, divination songs, and then we have something called the Meng Chou, which is a primer, um, and it's, it's, a, it's like a, a kid's book, but it's rhymed, and it's from the Tang Dynasty, so it has to fit in here somewhere. It's huge. It's like this really long work. 
Um, and then finally, poems left out of previous sections, right? Because someone made a mistake and they couldn't go back and fix it. So we have this final section here. And finally, we have another genre. These are not poems, but song lyrics. That's an emerging genre that, that we see in the Tang Dynasty, but really takes, um, becomes very popular in the Song Dynasty, the dynasty that follows after that. But that's where we end with this. But you can see now, this is a way of organizing literature. And for the most part, it follows a literary historical schema. And when it doesn't, it follows a topical schema. Right? But then it falls apart at certain points. And it's interesting to see where the fracture lines are, because there are problems of how you organize information. What do you do with poems for which you don't know the author? What do you do with poems that are fragments? Right? You can't stick them in the section that you want to stick them. So um, finally, and again, this is just where I'm going to end. Um, there are things like collections, and collections, you know, at this at this scale are again libraries, museums, archives. We've talked about this again as spatial logic. And here in this project, we're going to stick things like thematic research collections, digital databases, because often these are stored housed in libraries. In China, they're often private companies that sell them to libraries, but libraries subscribe to these things. Um, but the virtual collections of books and physical collections of books, I think, are close enough to understand in the same kind of schema, the virtual as an extension of the physical. Um, the bibliographies and catalogs are interesting because they're meta documents, and they abstract the ordering system of the collection. Now, the Chinese, traditional Chinese bibliography uses what's called the four classes system. It falls under classics, histories, masters, which they mean like philosophical masters, and literary collections, right? Um, this is a problem for any of any of one who has Chinese books. Like every time I've moved, I've had to reorganize my books. My books are organized in the Sibu system because that's the only way you can organize Chinese books, right? There's no other like logical way to organize them that uh, you know you can't do it alphabetically. You could do it alphabetically, but you'd be converting to pinyin. You have to remember where things are. So classics, histories, masters, literary collections. These four books were introduced um, an early point and it remains, in fact, the main way in which you would organize books within a traditional uh, sort of information classification system. We talked about serial publications already. I talked about Library of America, but things like newspapers, journals, internet literature are also serial in that same way. And so we think, we think that this makes sense as a way of thinking about publication of documents sequentially through time as opposed to arrayed in space. Um, this is where I'm going to stop. Um, this is really just a way of introducing what might be certain problems of literary history and thinking about how literary history has been addressed within at least one tradition. I think that this approach to literary history could be done in any tradition. Um, every tradition has this set of problems and, and different solutions. Um, some of these solutions, I think, overlap. But again, I'm happy to talk more about this if you want to. Thank you. Print edition. Okay. Yes. So that's all. That's also, that's also part of the machine. Yes. Sort of period. Yes. And then I'm sort of concerned, and this is a problematization of the issue. Masters and classics, they yeah. might blur it seems like. Yes. Okay. They do. There are problems within the system, right? So Confucius is a master. He's the master, right? But he's also a classic. Yeah. Um. In the, uh, woman, yes. Um, this is really interesting, and I love the idea of a collection 
with 57 contributors, and I don't know how you're doing that. <laughs> I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about what that, let's see. Hmm. Is that a document or a collection? I guess it's a document. But that document, yeah. the anthology, looks like, are there going to be you know, 57 articles on very precise aspects of this through history, um, and so I'm just curious right. to know a little bit about the structure, and then also I'm curious about um, the nationality um, of the contributors and what language or languages the book is going to be published. Right. So um, let me start with that second part first. Um, they're mostly North American. There's a few European. Um, there's um, one mainland Chinese contributor. We're going to translate that piece into English. Um, of course, a lot of the North American scholars are themselves from Taiwan or from the PRC um, or from Korea in one case. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's working, it's part of the problem is trying to work with people who kind of could get onto this concept and not sort of create a lot of problems in terms of like, we have to argue for with our contributors why they should be doing this, right? Um, so, um, but the thing is, uh, in literature, at least in my field, my field is very conservative. Most people who work in Chinese literature tend not to be open to this kind of approach. Um, the historians, because they've been working in book history longer than we have in the literary field, are much more open to this. They've been thinking about this problem, um, mostly from issues of economics and publication and market e economies, but, um, but, but certainly book history is part of their daily work. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the particular documents, I would say this is a collection, but again, I think documents is an interesting problem because it, it's a problem of perspective, right? So I think um, the documents within the collection, um, at least, as I guess I would put it, um, are oriented towards broad categories like things like early lexicons, late period lexicons, modern lexicons, because I think each of these are different in terms of what they're doing, um, and they're historical within the topic. Um, they're trying to sort of be representative at the same time, and they might, they'll might they do a deep dive, hopefully, into a particular example to sort of as a case study. Um, and that's the best way we could do to sort of gesture at the entirety of the field, because it is 3,000-some years of, of material that we're trying to encompass. Um, Modern stuff is easier in some ways because, um, like the thematic research collection piece, that, that problem, the problem there is probably it's going to get a little bit too technical because the per person writing that is going to be interested in protocols and things like that as opposed to the actual sort of structures, right, of, of um, in, how things are organized. Um, so, yeah, no, it is complicated, um, and again, um, you know, we have. There are things, and I've, I've been editing things now, and there are things that people don't talk about. I'm like, wait a minute, you have to talk about this. But they're like, yeah, I just wrote this thing, and I made an argument that doesn't include that thing, and it doesn't, that thing doesn't fit in the thing. I'm like, can you just gesture towards it somehow? <laughs> like, can you just like, mention that this thing existed, just so that we don't get killed like, when this goes out for, for review? Um, yeah, so it is that problem, because like, you know, how, there's too much, you know? And how do you have too much when I only let people have like 3,000 to 5,000 words? Yeah. Um, there's another question, I think, yes, and then. Yeah, in the, the Tang Dynasty uh, poetry, why are the immortals so far down the pecking order? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, I think um, humans take precedence um, for some reason, right? And so the immortals are, I think, that's their transitional place between humans and spirits. And so I think, I think in that, in the way in which it's organized, um, the immortals, right? Yeah, the immortals are that transitional moment. Again, um, you know, women are the best of the social others, right? Followed by the Buddhists and the Taoists, and then we have the immortals and then the spirits, and we're moving away from humanity or human centered poetry. Yeah. And then, yes. I'd like to ask you to, to 
to say something more about this larger argument that I believe you said you're making about literature as a machine. Right. Um, yeah. I wonder first if you are thinking that this is a useful category to apply to uh, literature outside of China. And secondly, what do we gain by that? Right. That's a good question. Um, so. One of the things that I'm interested in, um, and I'll start with the gaining part first, is um, I think we often think of literature as something that we consume in its modern form. And so I'm interested in restoring to um, our understanding of literature the actual conditions under which it was first archived and first made available, right? And so uh, a poem that is first found in a particular anthology and later gets extracted from the anthology and then becomes part of a poet's collection, but that poet's collection never existed until the 20th century, it's different in that context because in that context it's being understood in relationship to other poems in that set of organization, right? That set of organizing principles. And so I'm interested in that as, as the first problem, right? So again, it's not entirely what the new lyric uh, school is doing in terms of restoring, say, the weirdness of Emily Dickinson back to the manuscripts out of which she came, right? And not the clean printed uh, things. And, you know, and they argue things like they've taken things out of her letters and made them into poems, right? But it's akin to that. That is to say that I think we lose something when we don't think about the material conditions under which literature was first circulated. Um, now, um, literature as a machine, um, I, you know, I, I like to think of machines partly because there are rules, and I mean, not maybe machines, I, mean, I think of machines and algorithms and rules and things that you can do and you can't do within a poem, and because it, I think it gives us a sense of the the, con the, the constraints under, uh, under which literature is created. We're, we often think of literature as like these kind of under the romantic sort of no, mo um, mode of this kind of active inspiration. But actually, literature is often produced because of internalized sets of rules and procedures that the poets themselves may not be entirely conscious of, but they've certainly in inhabited and learned from an early age. Correlations of physical forms, physical manifestations to these different categories as well. Correlation of physical forms, like uh, I'm sorry, what do you mean? Well, do, do uh, uh, poems like the Buddhist figures the same as poems like ghosts? Um, oh, uh, you mean um, the 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 poems themselves, or? Yep. In whatever form we have them. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm, I'm not sure entirely understand, but I, let me say that one of the things that we see in terms of the poems from ghosts is that they're often extracted actually from an, an, an earlier uh, container, right? an earlier sort of system. That system often actually is a narrative, a narrative in which, again, these narratives are not fictional, they, they are semi-historic, or they're understood at the boundary between history and fiction, but they're often someone who's a traveler going somewhere, and he stays overnight in an inn, and then he hears someone chanting a poem, when he wakes up, he sees a pile of bones, right? And, but he, he writes on that poem, right? And the poem then sort of circulates on its own and gets attached to this kind of collection. So being abstracted from one container and put in a new container um, over time. I'm not sure if that addresses your question. I'm thinking about, is that the materiality that you're thinking about? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and the Buddhist poems are interesting too because the Buddhist poems are often, you know, they'll be in a Buddhist figure's collection. Um, and, you know, there'll be things like gata, but the gata often don't get collected in these kinds of things either, 
right? Because there are these religious kind of like boundaries that they don't cross often. So when we think about this, I mean, it does have things that are not secular, but it's mostly secular. Yeah. We'll be able to continue the conversation and reception to follow after our book school, but please join me in thanking Professor Chapman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.